Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today our topic is associative remote viewing. My guest is Dr. Deborah Lynn Katz, who recently received her doctoral degree in psychology from the University of West Georgia. Deborah is author of many books, including You Are Psychic, The Art of Clairvoyant Reading and Healing. Extraordinary Psychic, Proven Techniques to Master Your Natural Psychic Abilities, Freeing the Genie Within, Manifesting Abundance, Creativity, and Success in Life, and most recently written with John Knowles, a huge book, nearly 800 pages, Associative Remote Viewing, The Art and Science of Predicting Outcomes for Sports, Politics, Finance, and the Lottery. Additionally, I might mention that Deborah has on two occasions been the winner of the Warcolier Prize awarded by the International Remote Viewing Association for an outstanding research proposal. Deborah is currently based in Oregon, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Deborah. It's a real pleasure to be with you once again. Yes, I'm so happy to be talking to you again. And congratulations on completing your doctoral degree at uh, the University of West Georgia. But uh, today, we're going to focus on associative remote viewing. You and John Knowles have written this enormous book, which is going to become, I'm sure, for many years, the standard reference in the field of associative remote viewing. It's obviously attracting a lot of people for the simple reason that there seems to be a reward at the end, a pot of gold, so to speak, uh, at the end of the rainbow. You've been involved at this point. I, I don't know that I could even count the number of associative remote viewing projects uh, in which you've been a participant. Uh, do you have a number? I, I would say I've done hundreds and hundreds of trials in terms of being a remote viewer myself, but as a researcher as, as well. So I'm not sure, but I have been at it for about 10 years or so. And, you know, I've, I was initially so fascinated by remote viewing overall. And then I got sucked into this world of associative remote viewing, which tends to happen to a lot of people these days. And, then I just never got out of it. So I'm really excited about our book because it's really is accumulation of so many years of not just my own work and research, but so many other people. And, and we have so many contributors to our book. So really excited about that. There's a list of publications at the end of your book on associative remote viewing published projects. And it didn't include one of mine because it was never published. But <laughs> I was going to say, if it had been, I would have heard about it, but I would love to hear about it now. Well, uh, it, it was uh, a fascinating project that 
uh, didn't yield any uh, results. It was uh, basically at chance levels. And uh, it's one of those many uh, learning experiences that, that people have. And I know in your case, you have documented some really incredible hits, direct hits of very obscure targets and uh, examples where uh, people have sometimes made hundreds of thousands of dollars using associative remote viewing. But uh, it seems as if as often as not, the uh, projects come out at chance levels. Yes, many do. And it really depends how many trials we're talking about, because there's a lot of people who have some very good runs for a period of time and, and some quite long. So sometimes it may be just 10 trials, but, uh, you know, a lot of money can be made during that time as Russell Targ helped Pudoff. They were some of the first people to make over a hundred thousand dollars with, with associative remote viewing. But then there was the decline effect so to speak. But there are people that have been operating anywhere from the 62% range to up to the 85% range or a little higher for it, sometimes 30, 40, 50 trials. And then it starts to decline after that. So one of the things that I've been really looking at is associative remote viewing, but then also other methods for how can you make predictions about really anything horse racing, sports betting, uh, stock market, cryptocurrency, elections, just about anything that you would want to be able to predict into the future and what is the best approach. There are tens of thousands of people out there who know what the term associative remote viewing is and uh, the uh, the process, the way it normally works. But of course, we're going to have many viewers who are, they may have some idea of remote viewing, but associative remote viewing is often kind of a mind boggler for for people. So, we should begin by defining it. So basically, it's a subfield of overall remote viewing. And remote viewing, we, we might even need to define that. It's using your psychic abilities, but within a particular setup. So it's a formal setup where usually you're blind to the target, meaning you don't know what it is that you're describing. You don't have much information up front, and you do it in a systematic manner, and then it's systematically evaluated to then find out what the results are. So with associative remote viewing, there's many different things you could associate, but a lot of times it's photographs. So you can take just a random photograph. And so say there's one team, give me two, give me a name of two different football teams. Okay. The San Francisco 49ers and the Cincinnati Bengals. Okay, so 49ers and Bengals. So the 49ers, you, let's say you have a picture of a garden with some flowers and then you can take a, a picture. You want it to be very different than flowers. So maybe a cityscape of New York and then you can associate that with the Bengals. And then you don't tell the viewers any of this. You just tell them, I'm going to show you a photo in the future and I would like you to describe what photo, what you're seeing. And then if they describe a cityscape, then you can be pretty certain that what they're going to be shown is that cityscape. And since that's associated with the Banglers, then you can make that prediction and wager on it. So this is a way that, that you, from this process, 
you could hear that this is really a team approach. Now, it is possible for an individual to set up this system by themselves, but that takes a lot of work and usually uh, computer programs and things like that. There have been some people that were successful by themselves. Uh, this one um, man, uh, researcher Greg Kay, who did a 13-year study, and he yielded over $100,000 using this process. But he also used logic. So that's something else to keep in mind with this subject is some people are just purely trying to use their psychic abilities and other people are using a mixture of their knowledge of trading along with, with their intuitive abilities. Well, I can see why a teamwork approach would be uh, important. I think the main reason, it seems to me, that you would want to associate some image, some simple picture, for example, to a target where there's a financial outcome is because you don't want people who are engaged in remote viewing or other forms of psychic work to interject their own emotional preferences or, or their uh, uh, intellectual overlay that, that might occur. So, uh, it's a way of keeping things neutral. Yes, absolutely. It's keeping them neutral, the emotion out of it, the uh, analytical part out of it. And then you can take remote viewers and if they, it doesn't matter what kind of task they're doing, you can, you can assign the same process to again, it's been done with horse racing and with the presidential elections, many different things. And the, it's almost better if the viewer doesn't know what the project's about. So they don't even need to know, is this for trading or is this for horse racing? They're just told to describe a photo in the future. But of course, Remote viewers are curious people, and so that sometimes gets to be an issue. You know, what is this project about? Uh, who's, who's, what are people doing with the information? Are they wagering? And then you start to look at, are there implications behind the scenes? So when we talk about results, you know, a lot of people just think, oh, well, if you don't get results, then the viewers must not be very talented or, you know, there's something going wrong on that end, which that could be the case. But there's so many different aspects to this, such as judging, who's evaluating their sessions, who's making predictions, what are they doing with the predictions? You know, there, in a lot of projects that are involving trading for the stock market or cryptocurrency or Forex, especially with Forex, there are oftentimes mistakes made in, in, on the trader's end, or, you know, maybe they didn't get the trade in on time, or there's such minute fluctuations if they're trying to predict, is the stock market going to close higher or lower? And so there's so many different things that can kind of go wrong at any different stage. So that's why in our book, we have chapters on different scoring methods and different prediction methods and, and, topics such as ethics. How how do you get remote viewers to work for you and to be blind to, to what the overall project is, but remain ethical so that they're not being taken advantage of? And again, a lot of times remote viewers in these projects, they can tell something's going on behind the scenes. Researchers like to think that, you know, if you tell a remote viewer to 
focus on a picture, that's all they're going to focus on. But they can tell if the researcher has something going on behind the scenes that's not really going well. And when those two things start to happen, that's where some tensions can come about. In other words, there are probably a hundred ways in which a, an associative remote project, remote viewing project could get off track. Nevertheless, it, over the last 10, 20 years, there are uh, a handful, at least maybe several handfuls of professional organizations, typically small businesses, uh, that are engaged in uh, working for clients, doing remote viewing projects for either private parties or even for uh, business and government agencies. Yes, absolutely. And some are doing very well right now, I should say. So that's that's the other thing I've been doing is really trying to find out. Uh, so I've, I have a project where we've been assessing different social media groups, uh, even down to the details of how many times certain words appear in social media groups to have an understanding of what they talk about and what they value. That's one project. I, I did a, another project recently with Dr. Patrizio Trisoldi where we quite, we surveyed 108 remote viewers on their applications work. And for that, it wasn't just with associative remote viewing. It was to find out what are remote viewers doing these days professionally? Because one big question people almost always have is, well, what can you do with this? You know, it sounds cool that you can describe a photograph or describe a location, but what are the practical applications overall of these things? And, and basically it comes down to anything that you would want information about, you can use remote viewing for. And so, just like you said, there's business applications, predictive applications, uh, solving mysteries, finding things. So there's just so much that we can do with all of this. Yeah, for example, uh, it can be used to uh, solve scientific problems or problems of, of an engineering or medical nature. There doesn't seem to be any limit to what might be possible using remote viewing. The real limit seems to be uh, all the human dimensions. I guess if you want to think in terms of the signal transmission theory, it's not my favorite theory, but the signal to noise ratio is often a problem. But another problem too is there are so many remote viewers who are so enthusiastic and wanting to share their talents, especially you mentioned science. So there are remote viewers looking into COVID from several of us from the very start of it have been looking into trying to understand it, how even in the early stages, how was it passed? Was it, could it be passed through the, the air? Uh, what would be the outcome of that? What would help in developing vaccines? So there's a lot of work behind the scenes, but part of the problem is finding researchers, scientists in other areas who would actually want to work with remote viewers, who would understand how to work with remote viewers. And a lot of times those are really difficult to find. And then you also run into the pro problem. I know this because we, one of my very first formal research projects was having 40, I think it was 41 remote viewers describe a bacteriophage. So they were trying to understand what is the cause 
for replication in these viruses in, in phages. And, and we recruited scientists. It took us over a year to find three virologists who are willing to work with us. But then the problem was that when, when someone looks at data that has, has been, um, provided by remote viewers or psychics, they're rating the sessions. They're, they're wanting to learn from the sessions, but they're also at the same time rating them to see how accurate they are. So how do you rate something for accuracy if you're trying to learn from it? You're going to reject a lot of the information that you might actually benefit from that information you're rejecting because you don't know if what you've, you've never heard of it before. And so that is oftentimes the information that is what's going to teach you the most. So it's this paradox and you find this over and over again, anytime you're actually wanting to, to use remote viewing data, even for crime solving. I've worked personally with detectives where they're all excited if you're getting information that, that they're already uh, aware of or they are hoping for you know if you describe the suspect that they're the their top suspect they're happy but if you're describing someone else that they're not suspect they're not expecting then they just want to reject it as wrong until other information comes up later so you know this is really getting back to associative remote viewing it's not just about a psychic ability, it's about the whole setup and, and how you run the whole project. So there's so much to this, both on a macro level and, and micro level. Well, I know you've been working closely with Marty Rosenblatt, our mutual friend who's been on this channel several times, and uh, his organization, the Applied Precognition Project. And, and Marty's approach, uh, he sometimes calls it consciousness is fun Demental. Uh, he tries to make it fun. And, and, and so there are many small groups that come together. I think he has over a thousand participants these days. Uh, but they all have a lot of freedom to, to develop their own style of working. And, and so you've been part of that for, a good decade. You've probably witnessed dozens and dozens of approaches to solve the intricate problems associated with forecasting of this sort. Yes, so much so. So Marty was my introduction to associative remote viewing. I had seen a flyer at a remote viewing conference, actually the International Remote Viewing Association, which I should say is having their conference in less than a month at the Omega Institute in New York. And I'm on their board of directors now. But at one of their conferences, there was a flyer in one of the folders and it said ARV for fun, learn how to do associative remote viewing for free. So that was how I got sucked into this because myself, like so many other remote viewers, were just looking for practice opportunities, for opportunities to come together with other like-minded people and just have fun with this. And that's what Marty has really provided, especially now through his organization. He's had different organizations, but this longest running one is the Applied Precognition Project. So I ended up becoming their webmaster, which I did that for a few years and was helping organizing the conferences and the whole organization overall. And that's where I've met so many incredible people. And yes, just like you say, there's so many different ways to go about this. So we did uh, one, one group of us got together 
And we ran a dream project where we were using an associative remote viewing protocol, but instead of sitting there consciously tuning in while we're awake with remote viewing, we did it through dreaming. And we followed Dale Graff's approach. And I'm not sure if you've had Dale on your show yet, but he was the director of the Stargate program with the the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, He was their director and he coordinated the whole effort. And so he has been doing dream work where you dream a future feedback photo. He's been doing this for years and he has just incredible uh, examples from his own dream work and, and others. And we featured some of that in our book as well. But so we ran a year long project where five of us did dreaming every week for a whole year. And we ended up our, while our statistics came out to be just about 50%, we, we did have a 400% increase in our profits. And then a couple of the dreamers, if you just looked at our individual statistics, just a couple of the dreamers, I think mine was at like a 74% rate for the year. So this is something too, we're looking at, is it more valuable to have a group of remote viewers or a group of dreamers working together where you aggregate their results? Or do you have better results if you just go with one or two viewers at a time? And logic would have it that, you know, the more people, the more correspondence, it would make sense, but that you would do better. But that doesn't really seem to be panning out. It almost seems like it is sometimes better to just go with a couple viewers. Yeah, mathematically, if you have a number of people who are scoring slightly above chance and you combine their predictions to to make one prediction from the majority vote of those people, it should have a higher probability than any of the individuals. But in actual practice, it doesn't seem to always follow. Yeah, and and part of the reason for that is sometimes... Especially with associative remote viewing where there's binary options, there, there's more than one potential target. Sometimes you, you do have one or two people tuning into the wrong, the wrong photograph. And that's something that we've been studied for a long time. That's, that's called displacement. So they might do a really fantastic job describing the wrong photo that doesn't actualize it. That's not the actual outcome. And if you have a group of five viewers or dreamers and three of them are tuning into the correct photo and two of them are tuning into the incorrect photo or even one of them is tuning into the incorrect one, then what do you do with that? And that's an area that in my research, I found that project managers were not they a lot of times they don't pre-plan how they're going to deal with situations like that. And so that can throw a group off, especially I've seen it now a number of times. I can think of three in particular where you have very accomplished remote viewers or in the case of us with our dreaming project, we, we had Dale himself. He was one of our dreamers. And so sometimes the project manager puts more faith into one 
dreamer or remote viewer over another one. And then it's kind of like that person, if they're off for a trial, leads everyone off a cliff. So it, there's, there's so many things like that that can derail a project. And some, I, I just think sometimes you have to have better pre-planning. If it's myself running a project and, you know, let's say I have really great sessions from three people, one person, they've just missed the target. There's no data in there that matches. And one person that's really off, even though it's so hard to say, well, you know, these three people did really good. My inclination might be to just not make a prediction at all if one person is so far off. But, you know, again, it's in evaluating, well, if, if that had been the case, you know, would they have have done better in some, cause we've done projects where we evaluated judging and predicting. And, and it's really hard to say because yes, you would have less, less misses, but then if you have a very cautious approach, you're going to have less hits as well. So it, you know, then it gets into how much are you just trying to avoid misses versus hits? It's, it's, there's a lot to it. I'll say that. Well, and these are the kinds of problems that anybody engaged in trading or speculation, apart from the psychic dimension, has has to face. It's their tolerance for risk and uh, and their own personality style becomes part of it. But when it comes to displacement, it seems as if a person who displaces comes up with a very accurate description of the wrong target is basically giving the message uh, like, see, I'm really psychic, but I'm not going to help you on this one. And I think one of the reasons that that happens is that in our culture, uh, not to mention other cultures all around the world, psychic functioning is often considered a spiritual gift that should not be used for personal gain even for personal gain of, of other people. It's a, a, a deeply unconscious attitude that I, I'm sure permeates the, uh, the global mind, so to speak. And, it, and it's going to act like a, a trickster to sabotage projects. Yes, yes. I do think that's a factor. And perhaps it could be even stronger for the remote viewer or psychic who holds on to that belief, or if there's someone in that project who's, who's holding that, that can definitely have an issue. I know there was a project that, that Marty had run with Lori Williams, and I'm sure you know Lori. She's one of the foremost remote viewing instructors, an incredible remote viewer. She's, she's been both my teacher at different times and also part of my project. So I know what a great viewer she is. And she did a project where her first hundred trials, now these were very quick trials. They weren't in-depth remote viewing. They just did a, just a, got a couple impressions to say, was it photo A or photo B? She had almost a hundred percent accuracy on the first hundred trials. But, and this was early on when she had just started to do remote viewing. But and and she had been part of a Christian, basically it was like a Christian cult 
for when her younger years. And so there hadn't been much time in between. And that cult believed in renouncing everything and just living basically in poverty. So her first hundred hits were almost a hundred, her first trials were almost a hundred percent successful. And then she found out that, that they were being used to wager with and that money was involved because she didn't understand that. And after that, just everything tanked. So their results went way down from there. So she believes very much that it had to do with her own beliefs that she's had to work through, uh, through on that. Because really when it comes down to it, you can see there, this is work. You know, it may be fun. It may be exciting, exhilarating. But when any part of remote viewing or judging or managing projects is as much work as anything else. And there is no way that people can do this over time with, without get, unless they're independently wealthy or the, where there's no way they can do this without some kind of either compensation or support. It's just not realistic. And, and if you think about it, I look at anything that we do as, a gift from God, right? If you're, if you are an accountant and you have the ability to work with numbers, how is that less of a gift from God than your psychic abilities? I see it all as the same. So I really think we need to, you know, yes, this work can be very spiritual, but I'm sure being an accountant, if you approach your work from a spiritual perspective, you're there to help people, you're there to, grow, you're connecting with God when you sit down to do your work, that could be as spiritual as your psychic work. I, I don't always feel in some of my psychic work, especially because I, apart from remote viewing, I also do readings with people and healings with people. And I approach that from a very spiritual perspective. When I'm remote viewing a photograph, that, to, at least for me, that's not spiritual. That doesn't feel very spiritual, I'll say. You know, I'm sitting down to do a task. You know, same thing with writing. Sometimes writing is feels very spiritual. Other times it just feels anguish, anguished and, and stressful. You know, so how are you approaching these things? Well, I guess that uh, in order to do this work successfully, it's important to do a little inner work and look at your own attitudes uh, about these things. I would imagine that the organizations that you referred to uh, that have been engaged in successful, practical, uh, applied projects using associative remote viewing or other remote viewing techniques are uh, composed of individuals uh, for whom uh, this is no longer an issue. Yes. Well, so first of all, most people who, if not all, have received a degree of training, if not extensive training. Most of us are training junkies, so we just continue to want to learn. You know, whether that training is just just simple from talking to someone and, and picking up new approaches or, or ideas or very formalized training, uh, we're constantly learning, but like, as you say, you have got to be able to assess your, yourself, know yourself, know your inner processes. So it's within the training, it's really so much, 
even more about practice. And so practice, I look at that as self-training. And, you know, when are you, when are you getting in your own way? When is your ego getting in your way? Your emotions getting in your way? Your thoughts? How do you mitigate those? It's, it's not like you get to a certain point and these things don't happen. You know, they're, they, it's a lifetime practice. And just when you've, you know, mastered one type of target or one situation, the stakes get higher. Right now, now you're maybe more well known. So now you're even more nervous because if you, if you screw up, you know, it's going to be broadcasted everywhere. So now your fears that were, Oh, am I psychic? Am I even psychic? Can I do this? Now they're, you know, amplified like, Oh, well, what if I can't do this anymore? Or what if I'm too distracted? And so mitigating, you mentioned the signal to the noise factor before. Well, we have internal noise, this constant self-talk, our, our logical minds, and then we have the external noise, our, our families and the dog barking and whatever is going on, the, the phone ringing. So there's so much that we have to navigate here. And and yes, you, you have to know yourself. And if you don't, then I think that's also why sometimes people don't want to go into this work. You know, if, if, because the first thing you'll encounter, I, I don't know, uh, besides for meditation, which this is very much like meditation, there's very few things in life you could do where you'll encounter yourself, your thoughts, your feelings so quickly as any kind of psychic work. I guess I'm thinking in reference to myself, I took an early interest in ARV uh, when I first heard about the successful projects of Russell Targ and Hale Putoff and, and others and thought I would engage in it right away. But for, for myself, I realized uh, that I had grown up in an environment uh, from childhood where it always seemed as if there was never quite enough money in, in, uh, for everything we wanted. And I realized that I had within myself a kind of grasping uh mentality about do this, make money, uh, be rich, be successful, and, and that that grasping mentality was actually interfering with it. So, I I realized I'd be much happier if I didn't even try to, to do all of that. And uh, uh, so, I'm doing what I do now, talking to people like this and New Thinking Aloud. It's like, I think each person has to look at, at themselves and try to understand what is their unique path in life? What really works for them? And uh, I think that associative remote viewing can work very well for uh, some people, but probably not for me. You know, for myself, I never did it for the money. I did it so that I could practice remote viewing and learn about how all of this works. And I'm even still there with it now. You know, not to say that I don't appreciate it if I, if I work with a manager and some money is made and they send some money my way, but that's not even why I'm doing the project. And a lot of the projects I've done, you know, we, we wanted to learn about the whole process of, of remote viewing and, and, precognition and can you tune into the future? So, so for our dream project, for example, our manager was wagering a hundred dollars at a time and she put it into an account where she wasn't even, she thought at the end we would just have a party or something with the earnings. So, 
And then when it was all over, she was kind of afraid to withdraw it because she wasn't sure if it was legal within the United States to be doing this kind of on online betting. So the money's just still sitting in an account. So really, it is so much about you, you don't have to even care about making money to do this project. But some people definitely do. And, you know, it is just like gambling. And I, I hear what you're saying, like, if I go to Vegas, and I start playing the slot machines, if I'm if I'm feeling good about it, I'll, I'll keep it up. But when I start thinking, oh, I've just lost a hundred dollars and now I need to get this back or I'm going to have to go home and feel bad about it. And you just start to play and you're having not a good feeling. You're not going to win anyway. It's just stressful. So that's the time to get up and leave. And so sometimes people do hit stress with this type of thing. In fact, when I was working with the Applied Precognition Project, we we did a project, it was called Project Firefly, and we had basically 60 investors, and most of them were remote viewers. It was a year-long project. And in the end, we, we were going for making hundreds of millions of dollars, at least the people that ran this particular project had said, you guys can make so much money from this. They were using a strategy called the Kelly wagering strategy, which I would assume you're familiar with. And the project did not turn out well. And in the end, I think it was about $55,000 in a year just was gone, disappeared. So well, we know where it disappeared to. It just that we were doing Forex trades and yeah, the whole project tanked. And so that money was lost. Fortunately, with 60 investors, even though $55,000 sounds like a lot, you know, nobody except for maybe one person, I think one person put in about $3,000, but most people were putting in anywhere from $100 to $1,000. So it wasn't a great tragedy for most people, but still it was an effort that required thousands of trials, thousands of hours, so, so much work. And in the end, it just didn't work out. Part of the reason it didn't work out, you're probably wondering why, and it had to do with early losses, early losses and too large wagers being placed. And we, uh, this was also based on the idea that there had already been a high hit rate before because with Kelly wagering strategy, you, if you're gonna, if you're gonna invest a higher amount, you only want to do that if you know that you have a, a high hit rate to begin with. And we, we thought that, that the groups or the guys, I shouldn't say we, but the guys who had set this up, uh, we're working under the assumption that there was already a 65% hit rate going on, but that wasn't true of all the remote viewers. There were, there were a range of experienced remote viewers, some who were getting that rate, but there were, were a range of very new viewers. And there were also some using certain projects that actually had already been, uh, they had not been at a 65% hit rate. They had been operating more at like a 49% hit rate. And more of those viewers were contributing sessions overall to this overall pot than the ones that were had a higher hit rate. So you put that together and it was a rather uh, unsuccessful project, I would say, except that we learned a lot. So, you know, how do you define success? 
Well, and you're talking about a, a situation where the chance expectation is 50% typically uh, when, when you wager uh, on uh, sport events or in the financial markets. It's usually a 50% ratio, although there are many other ways it could be uh, structured. Well, the uh, Applied Precognition Project set up by uh, Marty Rosenblatt has uh, been active now for over a decade. And my understanding is that overall on uh, remote viewing projects, not all of which are associative remote viewing or designed to uh, uh, wager, you, uh, he, he has a, a, a consistent hit rate of over 60% uh, is, is what I recall from my last conversation with Marty. Yes, that, that sounds about right if you look at all the viewers together. But one of the things he's been doing in recent years is really with, with certain projects, trying to work with those that already have demonstrated a higher hit rate. And so he, he still has different groups going on where there's brand new viewers who don't even know what their hit rate is. They haven't done enough to document that. But, but I think all the, whether you're looking at just what he's doing or you're looking at the at more formal parapsychology projects that span into the Gonsfeld research or, uh, uh, there's a lot with the Gonsfeld and other remote viewing research that they really find that select subjects, certain people do tend to do better than just say, if you get a bunch of college students together who don't have any experience in these areas. So that's, I, I would say that that was one of the things that was learned from Project Firefly is that you really want to be careful about who you're working with. And I just want to qualify that with who you're working with. You know, again, people develop, and that's something that a lot of people don't realize about this. They think, well, uh, you know, you're, we've got gifted people or not gifted people. I would say you've got experienced people and unexperienced people because until someone's got experience and has done this enough, you don't even know if they're gifted. You know, that because again, this isn't just about having some kind of spontaneous experience and, and then someone just reporting what they're getting. This is, can a person operate within a specific setup and when, when they need on demand, you know, can people, uh, can people perform on demand and give you what you need? And to do that, it does take talent, but it also takes some knowledge of how to deliver the information and how to report it and how to work with others. So there's a, a lot involved with all of this. There, there are so many variables and so many individual differences. And I would also think that even for a gifted, experienced remote viewer, people are going to have uh, hot streaks and cold streaks. Yes, definitely. And, you know, sometimes it has to do with what types of targets are they dealing with. And sometimes I think that researchers or, or newer projects don't quite under, project managers don't understand this. So you could have people that are very experienced at describing locations, but they've never 
they don't really have that much experience describing physical objects or photos of physical objects. And that's another project that I, I have a paper coming out on where we were examining, can remote viewers describe what kind of photographs can they describe the best? So can they describe objects against you know, set within regular backgrounds like if you had a boat in water, could they describe that as well as a boat in a desert or a boat in a living room? So we compared regular backgrounds and then what we called Ill illogical or abnormal backgrounds. And then we just wanted to know also about white backgrounds because these days a lot of project managers, you know, it's very easy to find a photograph of a photoshopped object in a against a white background. So you might think, oh, I, you know, I can find all these photos. I'll use those as my targets. But do you know if the remote viewer has experience with that? Or a lot of remote viewers, they like to use techniques where they imagine themselves moving around a location. I'm sure you've done that where, you know, you go to ground level. What do you see at ground level? Go up 500 feet and look down. What do you see there? And with remote viewing, the cool thing about it is you can use your whole body, your sense of touch. So you may, you might feel the temperature. You might feel the texture of things. So it's a, it can really get into this full body experience scene. But if you have someone who approaches a target like that, and then you give them something that's not real, like a photoshopped, uh, an artificial object against a white background, for one thing, if they don't know that's what the kind of targets they're receiving, they're probably not going to do well. They're going to probably give you all sorts of information that's not in the photo. It's going to be confusing, or they might look for something to describe that would be more interesting than that. So you can't just assume that even a very talented subject is going to do well at all of these different targets. You really have to test them first. And, and one way to deal with that is if there's any way you can discuss it with a viewer up front, but then have them do pre-trials, have them practice where it doesn't matter and do enough, not just one or two, but maybe, you know, do five or 10 practice trials and see how that's going to go before you, you know, do a project where the stats really matter or where you're going to actually invest money on it. Well, I should think that the uh, successful organizations involve teams where people know each other very well and have a good sense of what kinds of targets work for this person as opposed to that person. They don't all have to have the same target. Yes, exactly. And one of the groups, I've been working with a remote viewing group called the Sublime Group, and we've had six viewers work together now for probably about nine years or so. And in the early days, and we did initially meet ourselves at an applied precognition project conference. And then we just started to work together from there. And it was great because we would do, we would do 10 trials and see how it went, make adjustments, then we would change and do another 10. And, you know, this wasn't for formal research, but it was our own research to learn. And then we start after that, then we started to go into more formal projects where we, we would keep the same protocol for a year or so. But it was great to have that freedom to experiment. And, and as we have developed into doing more formal projects, and getting to know other researchers that 
this is sometimes a problem is that on the one hand, we're really excited to have researchers come in who are brand new to this. You know, they're, they're academically trained, so they know how to carry out projects in a careful way. And yet there's so much to this that in a, in a way you're starting over or kind of feeling like you're reinventing the wheel because they just don't know all those ins and outs. So one of my, my own missions, at, at least at the, up till now has been to try to bring these different researchers together. So formal researchers, informal, uh, applied project managers that are almost operating in the same manner as more academically trained researchers. There's just a few things that they need to do, I think, to get their work up to par where it could become a published study. And meanwhile, the academic researchers really need to learn from these other people. So one of the things that I recently developed with Dale Graff as part of the International Remote Viewing Association is, is what's called the IRVA Research Unit, IRU. And so it is, we have monthly creative meetings, and this is open to anybody. Um, we'd love it if people became IRVA members. And I know you've been a longtime IRVA member, but we um, come together once a month on the first Sunday of every month for our creative meetings. And we do have academically trained researchers and remote viewers, even people just starting out. And we come together and just talk about research ideas. And it's, we've only been doing this now for less than a year, but it's really exciting to see all the new projects coming out and people that never thought of doing formal research before are. And then we have visitors from other research institutes joining us. So it's, and we do talk about associative remote viewing, but really all different kinds of projects. I would think one of the difficulties in the field of associative remote viewing is that so many projects are done on a confidential basis for private clients and uh, using a variety of methods and, and they're never really shared uh, in all the details that would be necessary for researchers to understand uh, what works and what doesn't work. Yes, that is I believe that's a growing problem and you have it both with individuals, you know, speaking about money, speaking about wagering, what you're doing with your wagers. That is an area that is taboo, even more than talking about sex, it seems. People do not want to talk about their finances. And I've been saying for years that this is one of the largest variables that's the least known because there, there are so many, even within the applied precognition project, uh, a lot of people are just wagering on their own. They receive the predictions as part of the group experience and you don't know what people are doing with the wagers. So how do you know if that's impacting the overall process? You, you don't and you don't know how much money is being wagered, how much money is being earned. So there's there's that on that level. But then also what's been happening most recently are there are uh, companies or people that are um, coming in from the outside. So they just hear about remote viewing. They want to recruit remote viewers. And most recently, there ha has been a group of guys with a questionable background who have really, I, I would call it infiltrating the whole remote viewing community. And many parapsychologists too have gotten kind of sucked in because they've been trying to recruit all these people. And then they're having them sign non-disclosure agreements 
and there's very punitive measures in there. So, and a lot of remote viewers are just there. Remote viewers are many are not even used to getting paid. They're not used to signing contracts. And so then one of the measures in there is if they share information about the project, they could be fined $250,000. So there has been a lot of concern about this because then the, and the companies are trying to not just make money with this, but now they're starting to see, can, can we like make this our own proprietary methodology? You know, so can we tweak this in a way where we can improve upon it, but then we own the information. So this is really shocking to a number of us where, you know, this has been so open. If anybody is, is learning, they, go on social forums, they go on programs like this and say, hey, I found this method or this approach is working better. You know, that's been part of research. And now to just have this go underground and not be not have viewers be able to talk about it or share their session work, it is it is a real concern. So, you know, this idea, well, we want the world to know about the the potential, human potential and what you can do with it. That's great, but do we want these same, whether corporate forces or people who are just interested in having this for themselves, you know, do, is this really a good thing? There's a lot of questions about that right now. Well, I guess it's a question of uh, human motivations. And, and when we look out at the world, we can see that we're facing enormous problems these days uh, in terms of the environment, in terms of our politics, in terms of uh, managing uh, diseases, for for example. And all of these problems seem to stem from human nature itself. Yes, absolutely. And I think it was naive, of certainly of myself and, and probably several of my colleagues, to think that this wouldn't be the one area that would draw both positive attention, but if you want to call it negative attention or just these other forces that are coming in. So, you know, why wouldn't you assume that if, if there's any potential for people to make money, this is the area they're going to gravitate to. But this is also why with our book and it's 700 pages seems a little ridiculously long. And I agree that it is, but we really wanted my co-author and I, we wanted to take all the knowledge that's been gained over the last not just 10 years that we've been involved, but, you know, going way back from the start over since the early 70s, we wanted to take everything and make it available, every little ounce of knowledge that anyone's accumulated. We wanted to make it openly available because who knows in the future what is going to be available or not. So definitely a source book for people to launch from and hopefully come up with brand new you know, approaches and, and solutions to some of the problems that we've identified within associative remote viewing. Well, it's a fabulous source book, and it uh, has a lot of personal stories. It goes into a lot of detail about target selection and different types of uh, judging and, and many of the technical aspects involved in associative remote viewing. So, it, uh, it's a book that I expect will be uh, regarded as, as one of the seminal products of what will eventually, in my opinion, turn into 
a, a whole industry. It's still in, in its infancy, but you've done a, a very credible job, Deborah. So uh, it's a pleasure to be with you once again. I'm delighted to have this time with you, and I look forward to uh, watching your evolution as a researcher and as a remote viewer in uh, years to come. Oh, thank you. We've, we've got some exciting projects ahead, so we'll have to talk about those in the future. We're going to be having, we're going to be having remote viewers trying to describe license plates and street signs next. And then also we're going to be experimenting with marijuana to see what types of marijuana, if any, can enhance the experience or can distract from it. So stay tuned on that. Well, that sounds like the kind of project I'd like to volunteer for. <laughs> Deborah Lynn Katz, thank you so much for being with me today. It's been a pleasure. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Music